Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 14 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In July and August 2008, the Information Commissioner published 42 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 10. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, amongst others, we'll be discussing decisions on the definition of information and when it is held by a public authority, the applicability of FOI to information held in solicitors' files, vexatious requests, Section 21 and what is reasonably accessible information, Section 35 and the public interest test, Section 36 and requests about requests, disclosure of statistics, and when losing bidders' information should be disclosed despite the Section 43 exemption. We've discussed a number of Commissioner and Tribunal decisions lately on when information is held by a public authority for the purposes of the Act. The Tribunal decision in Home Office and the Information Commissioner, dated the 15th of August, concerned a request by a journalist for the number of work permits obtained by nine named employers in the IT sector. The Home Office replied to the effect that the information requested was not held in the required format and would have to be created through the interrogation of its database, something which it was not obliged to do under the Act. The Tribunal followed its earlier decision in Mr Johnson and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice and decided that this was not information creation but rather information retrieval and should be considered under the Act's freeze provisions. In coming to its conclusion, the Tribunal considered the decision of the House of Lords in Commons Services Agency and the Scottish Information Commissioner. This concerned the Scottish Freedom of Information Act, whose provisions do not differ in any material respect from the 2000 Act with which we are concerned. The House of Lords in that case in effect accepted a submission that the obligations of public authorities are limited to information which is truly held by them and that they are not obliged to conduct research or create new information on behalf of requesters. The House went on to find that the process of barnardizing or anonymizing information held by a public authority did not involve the creation of new information, but rather a change in the form in which the information might be provided. The Tribunal also noted Lord Hope's observations that this part of the statutory regime should be construed in as liberal a manner as possible. A public authority's external legal advisers will often hold a lot of documentation about the subject of their advice. Is this information held on behalf of the authority and so subject to the FOI regime? A recent tribunal decision sheds more light on this issue. In Mrs Francis and the Information Commissioner and South Essex NHS Trust, dated the 21st of July, the tribunal ruled that not all information held in solicitors' files will be information held on behalf of their public authority clients, and so subject to the Act. The request concerned information about the death of the appellant's son and the care he received from the Trust. A lot of information was held by solicitors acting on behalf of the Trust during various inquiries into the death. It argued that most of the information was not held on its behalf, but belonged to the solicitors, and so could not be the subject of an FOI request. The tribunal ruled that in respect of each set of files, it had to consider whether the papers were owned by the trust as client, or whether they were owned by the solicitors. If it was the former, the papers were held on behalf of the trust, and would be disclosable unless an exemption applied. If it was the latter, 
The papers were held by a private entity outside the scope of the Act and would not be disclosable. The Tribunal considered various legal authorities on the ownership of solicitors' files as well as the Law Society's Guide to the Professional Conduct of Solicitors. It decided that the client is the owner of all documents that were created or received by the solicitor whilst acting as the client's agent. Such documents will include all transactional documents and drafts, correspondence passing between the solicitor and third parties, and attendance notes of conversations between the solicitor and third parties whilst acting as the client, solicitor and agent. The solicitor's working papers belong to the solicitor. Such papers include correspondence to and from the client, attendance notes of discussions with the client, drafts of letters and notes of other research. With regard to photocopies of documents, the tribunal agreed with the Law Society's guide that copies made for the client's benefit of letters received by the solicitor belong to the client, whereas copies of the same letters made for the benefit of the solicitor belong to the solicitor. A file may contain a clean or original copy and a photocopy bearing the solicitor's annotations. The former may well belong to the client, but the latter may well be a working paper belonging to the solicitor. The tribunal then went on to consider the Section 42 exemption, which we'll discuss later on in this podcast. This is an important ruling for lawyers and their clients. For the former, it's a reminder that the FOI's reach may extend to client documents. Any authority considering rejecting a request as vexatious will find the Commissioner's Awareness Guidance Number 22 a very useful starting point. It contains a summary of relevant decisions up to July 2007. A recent case which applies the principles set out in the guidance involves Centro and is dated the 14th of August. The complainant made a number of information requests in three separate letters. The Commissioner agreed with Centro that the requests were vexatious, having considered them in the context and background in which they were made. Section 21 allows a public authority to withhold information which is reasonably accessible by other means. Decisions on this exemption, which we discussed in episode 12, place emphasis on the words reasonably accessible. In a decision involving the Health and Safety Executive, dated the 21st of July, the complainant asked for the names of those who had died as a result of incidents in the workplace which were reported to the HSE. The request was refused by the HSE who cited, amongst others, the Section 21 exemption. It stated that the information was often publicised by it and was also the subject of open coroner's decisions. The Commissioner found that Section 21 was not engaged. He noted that not all information was reasonably accessible. There are many fatalities that do not receive publicity from the HSE. Whilst the information was available from the coroner's courts, the complainants would need to visit each of the 60 such courts on a daily basis to be sure of not missing a relevant reported death. HSE has the information stored in collated form already and the Commissioner decided that it was reasonable for it to disclose it. In August, Hampshire Constabulary was ordered by the Information Commissioner to disclose the make and model of vehicles provided for personal use to two Assistant Chief Constables. This followed a request for details about the cars provided to chief police officers for their personal use. The public authority confirmed that two assistant chief constables are provided with vehicles for their own use, but refused to release the requested information claiming the exemption under Section 31 for law enforcement and Section 38 health and safety. 
It argued that disclosure could allow the vehicles to be identified and make them less effective for policing purposes. Furthermore, it could lead to criminals and members of the public being able to identify the vehicles, which could increase the likelihood of the officers being attacked. The Commissioner accepted that disclosure of the requested information could lead to the cars being identified as police vehicles. However, there was no evidence to suggest that either car is used in covert operations that could be undermined if information assisting their identification were released. Furthermore, the Commissioner ruled that Hampshire Constabulary failed to provide sufficient evidence to support the argument that releasing the details would put the officers at risk. The Commissioner also gave weight to the fact that similar information had been disclosed by a number of other police forces in the country. In episode 10, we discussed decisions involving the Section 35 exemption. This covers information about policy formulation held by central government. It's a complicated exemption which also requires consideration of the public interest test. The recent tribunal decision in the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and the Information Commissioner dated the 29th of July concerned a request for information about the government's decision in 1998 on the list of sporting events which should be protected from having television rights sold for exclusive viewing by subscription or pay-per-view customers. The Commissioner agreed with the Department that the exemptions in Section 351A, Formulation or Development of Government Policy, and Section 351B, Ministerial Communications, applied, but that disclosure would be in the public interest. For example, it would promote accountability and transparency and broaden policy input. He also took account of the fact that the request related to information which was seven years old. The Tribunal agreed with the Commissioner on the application of the exemption, but ruled that the public interest in maintaining the exemption outweighed the public interest in disclosure. In doing so, the Tribunal provided a useful commentary on important Section 35 cases and the approach to be undertaken when applying the public interest test. The decision is well worth a read if you regularly rely on Section 35. An individual aggrieved by a public authority refusing to disclose information will often make an FOI request about his or her FOI request. Section 362B allows information to be withheld if, in the reasonable opinion of the qualified person, disclosure would or would be likely to inhibit the free and frank provision of advice or the free and frank exchange of views for the purposes of deliberation. This exemption was claimed recently when a complainant asked to see copies of the documentation and internal communications created during the consideration of his successful FOI request to the Ministry of Defence. The MOD did agree to provide the complainant with a summary setting out the main stages of the process it had gone through, but refused to provide the specific information sought. The Commissioner took the view that apart from a small amount of information, Section 36 had not been applied correctly and that the information should be released. He considered that the severity of the prejudice that would result was not substantial. Even though much of the requested information could be described as routine and mundane, disclosing it would have the benefit of enabling the public to understand how a major public authority has approached the question of release of information that was, at one time, quite sensitive. He disagreed with the MOD who said that once a request has been completed, public disclosure of the way in which that request had been handled would significantly affect the nature of officer discussions about such requests in the future. In episode 7 we discussed decisions involving requests for information about retirement packages of senior officers. 
The Commissioner ruled that the Section 40 exemption applies in that such information is personal data and disclosure would be unfair to the individuals. In a tribunal decision, Roger Salmon and the Information Commissioner and King's College dated the 17th of July, the request was for papers and agreements concerning the departure of the former provost of the college. Since disclosure would have revealed any payoff and compensation paid to her, the tribunal agreed with the commissioner that the exemption under Section 40 had been properly claimed. It expressly endorsed the commissioner's approach in similar cases involving Denbyshire County Council and Calderdale Council. In episode 13, we discussed a decision involving Rhonda County Borough Council dated the 19th of May. This concerned disclosure of statistical information relating to individuals excluded from schools as a result of drug fines. The Commissioner ruled that such statistics were personal data and properly exempted under Section 40. This issue has been considered again by the Information Commissioner in a decision involving the Department of Health dated the 28th of July. The complainant made a request regarding the release of details of abortion statistics for 2003 where the abortions had been carried out under medical condition grounds. The Department of Health suppressed the statistics where the number of occurrences was less than 10. It relied upon the exemption under Section 40 as well as Section 44. The Commissioner ruled that the requested information was not personal data and that therefore Section 40 was not engaged. He concluded that the information was neither the personal data of doctors nor patients and, unlike in the Rhonda decision, there was no possibility of anyone being identified from the data nor from any information publicly available. Before we move on from Section 40, a quick mention of a decision involving a request for information about the controversial case of Alexander Litvinenko. In August, the Commissioner ruled on a decision involving the Foreign Commonwealth Office where the complainant requested the names and job titles of the UK and Russian diplomats who were expelled as a result of the diplomatic dispute that followed the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006. The FCO refused to disclose the information relying on the exemption in Section 40. The Commissioner found that the requested information constituted personal data and its disclosure would breach the first data protection principle which requires that personal data be processed fairly and lawfully. He ruled that given the circumstances, it would be reasonable for the expelled diplomats to assume that their identities would not be revealed to those without an operational need to know. This is especially true given what the FCO described as the long-standing diplomatic custom of which diplomats would no doubt be aware that the identities of expelled diplomats are not disclosed thus adding to the expectation of anonymity. The Commissioner also felt that given the diplomats involved were expelled as a result of a situation beyond their control, they should be protected as far as possible from any adverse consequences. It would not be unreasonable to suppose that their careers, given the sensitivity of their roles, could be disadvantaged in some way were their identities to be revealed. In episode 11, we discussed Mersey Tunnel Users Association and the Information Commissioner, where the Information Tribunal ruled for the first time that legal advice should be disclosed on public interest grounds. In Mrs Francis and the Information Commissioner and South Essex Partnership NHS Trust, the facts which we discussed under Section 21 above, the request also concerned some information held on the Trust lawyer's files which was subject to legal privilege. The tribunal decided that the public interest balance in this case was firmly in favour of maintaining the exemption.
It compared this case with the decision in Mersey Tunnel. It noted that there the legal advice was a one-off, though it had effects which were still continuing. Here the advice extended over a period of time, and is still current. Police inquiries, for example, have relatively recently been reopened. In Mersey Tunnel, the issues involved were matters of pure public administration. The tribunal in that case observed that in such circumstances there is less inbuilt weight attaching to the exemption. Here, significant personal interests were involved, literally matters of life and death. The tribunal said that this is a case at the opposite end of the spectrum of importance, much closer to the examples discussed in Mersey Tunnel of legal advice in a criminal or childcare case, where it would be less likely that it would be in the public interest to disclose such advice. The tribunal accepted that the appellant had a great personal interest in information relating to the circumstances in which her son died, but that that was not the same as the public interest in those circumstances which had been largely satisfied. Finally, on section forty-two, the commissioner's decision involving the Ministry of Justice, dated the fifth of December two thousand and seven, has now been upheld by the Information Tribunal in Jonathan Fuller and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice, dated the fifth of August. The complainant requested a copy of any legal advice which confirmed the possession of images of consensual sadomasochistic violent sex can be successfully prosecuted, and that Article Eight of the European Convention does not apply. The commissioner agreed with the Ministry of Justice that Section Forty-Two applied. He noted that the phrasing of the request was for any legal advice which confirms. He found that either confirming or denying that legal advice was held in the circumstances of this case does in itself attract privilege, as to do so would reveal the basic contents of the advice if held. It's now common practice for complainants not just to request details of contracts and successful bids, but unsuccessful bids as well. In a decision involving the Department for Transport, dated the twenty-eighth of July. The complainant requested the net present value figures offered by the unsuccessful bidders for the South Western Rail franchise. The DFT confirmed that it held this information, but refused to disclose it, stating that it believed it was exempt under Section forty-three-two, that it would harm the commercial interests of the bidders as well as the DFT itself. The commissioner was not persuaded by this argument. He believed that the bidding process for a rail franchise and the process of awarding the franchise to a particular bidder is a complex one with many variables, including the needs and priorities of the bidding companies at the time the bids are made. He didn't believe that conclusions could be drawn solely from the NPVs alone. He was also not persuaded by the argument that the withheld information would allow competitors of the bidders to take a more informed view of their future bidding behaviour, nor that the disclosure will be likely to lead to more conservative bids being made in future rail franchise competitions and thus harming the DFT. That concludes this month's podcast. Don't forget, all these decisions will be discussed in my forthcoming Freedom of Information Public Interest Test Workshops. More details at www.actnow.org.uk. This podcast was brought to you by me, Ibrahim Hassan. I specialize in all aspects of information rights law, particularly freedom of information, data protection, and surveillance law. My clients include local authorities, the NHS, and government departments. Increasingly, I'm being engaged by public authorities to advise on the application of exemptions to complex freedom of information requests. 
If you'd like to take advantage of this service, please get in touch. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.